All right. Uh, let's, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you for uh, the beautiful spring weather. Thank you for the privilege we have of gathering this morning, especially in light of, of not gathering so often in the last couple of years. Lord, what a, what a privilege it is to gather with the saints on the Lord's Day to talk about such uh, important topics. Father, we do pray that you would be glorified in all that we think, say, and do this morning. Lord, be glorified through this lesson, be glorified through the singing, through the fellowship, through the preaching, through the celebration of the Lord's Supper today. We pray that you would be um, honored and magnified. Lord, help us to think much of you as a result of what happens today. Lord, I confess that I'm very dependent on you, um, especially as we dive into this difficult topic this morning. So I pray that you'd give me grace to communicate charitably and skillfully. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Good morning. Welcome this morning. Not quite yet. Not quite yet. Hide that. Oh, there we go. Okay. All right, so uh, we are in an apologetic series, and we have been spent, we've spent the last four weeks on uh, science and faith, and last week in particular, we, we dove into the subject of evolution. So we're going to spend two more weeks on that, and then I'm going to have a panel discussion on evolution in three weeks with three esteemed guests. Who are they? I'm not going to tell you. You'll have to wait and see. Show up in three weeks for our three esteemed guests, three experts on this subject. Um, so last week, we, we dove into the subject of evolution. Let me just quickly review. Uh, we, we talked about definitions, and I mentioned that there are at least four different ways the word evolution is used. So number one, evolution just means very, very broadly and generally speaking, change over time, and hardly anyone is going to wrangle with you on that particular definition. Change over time. Uh, number two, evolution often refers to microevolution, and that is minute changes within a species. Uh, and, and breeders have known this for thousands of years. That's why we have so many different breeds of dogs uh, and cats and horses and birds. Um, so everyone agrees that small changes within a species can, can uh, create large dogs, small dogs, really, really furry dogs, dogs that have hardly any fur at all, et cetera, et cetera. Third definition uh, is macroevolution, and that argues that those small, minute adaptions or changes within a species over billions of years eventually lead to what? New species, big, big, significant changes. And the fourth definition is often called the Neo-Darwinian synthesis, uh, and this came about because of the work of who? We discussed this last week. You know, I, I forgot my coffee cards, my, my prizes. Um, William Farley, can, my bag's back there. Can, can you grab those Bruce Bros cards? Uh, yeah, they're, they're in the front right pouch, I think. Um, who can tell me whose groundbreaking work in genetics? Okay, 
Isaac, it's not fair because you are a pre-med student at Whitworth. You're, 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 you're bio, you're, what are you? Just normal biology. Just normal biology. <laughs> All right. Actually, give one of these to Isaac. Just because he's normal biology, he gets a <laughs> gift card. Okay, so, so basically what, what happened was, scientists realized that natural selection was not powerful enough to create a new species on its own. So because of the work of, of Gregor Mendel in genetics, the neo-Darwinian synthesis argues that natural selection working with genetic mutations those two things combined are what eventually over billions of years create new species. So today, when people talk about Darwinism, they're talking about that version of Darwinism. Genetics working with natural selection to create new species. So, so, so those are the, the four ways evolution, that term is used. When I use it in, in this class, I'm referring to the last one primarily, and that is um, the neo-Darwinian synthesis. So last week, we, we began to critique evolution uh, someone tell me the difference between biological and chemical evolution. What's the difference? What's chemical evolution? Yes, Pat. Yeah. So chemical evolution is simply dealing with a very limited subject, and that is um, the first life. How did life emerge from non-life? That's chemical evolution. Uh, what's biological evolution? Dan. Yeah, how life advanced from that first, that first single-celled organism. Uh, and, and as I mentioned last week, evolution only has to do with living things. So when we're talking about Big Bang cosmology or astronomy, that's not evolution. Evolution has to do with living things. And we'll talk more about that uh, either this week or next week, depending on how far we get in my notes today. So last week, we, we began to critique chemical evolution. And I argued that chemical evolution is most likely, most assuredly, false and I gave three reasons for that last week. I don't remember what those three reasons were. If you can give all three of them, I'll give you not one, but two. <laughs> Do you see that, Skip? Three, three. Well, if you get all three, maybe. Without looking at your notes, no cheating. Off look at my notes. What did, what did I say last week? <laughs> um, anyone remember? What was the first one? Yeah. Yeah, so we talked about the famous Stanley Miller experiment, uh, and he tried to simulate early life, and when the lightning struck the swamp gas, miraculously, life appeared from non-life. And um, we know now that, that the conditions on planet Earth were much more hostile to life than Miller ever imagined. What was the second thing we talked about? We, we all know that non-intelligence cannot produce what? Information, information. So the, <clears throat> the amount of <clears throat> information in the DNA of the simplest cellular structures is mind-boggling. There is a massive, massive amount of coding, ATCG, uh, in, in the most simplest life forms. And again, we all know that that, that type of specified complexity, which is no different than um, a, a book, a novel, Encyclopedia uh, Britannica, when, when we see that, we think, what? That must have come from intelligence. <laughs> it's interesting how SETI, what is SETI? You know what SETI is? S-E-T-I? Search for extraterrestrial information or life. 
They, they are just hoping and praying that they'll get from outer space someday just a, a minuscule amount of information, of code. Because if we get that, it'll prove what? There's intelligence out there. Yet those same people look at DNA and say, oh, this, this came from randomness. Which is utter nonsense, okay? Uh, and the third thing we talked about last week, refuting chemical evolution, was... Remember? Had to do with, with probabilities. Probabilities. Okay. I'm hearing lots of mumbling. Okay. So the the mathematical probability of all that swamp gas swishing together and bumping against each other and producing an incredible amount of complexity, the odds of that happening, uh, I, I forget the numbers, there's, there's, it's, it's essentially mathematically impossible. 10 to 150th, that's right, that's right, because, and the reason why I remember that is because there is 10 to the 85th atoms in the known universe, and it was twice as big as that number, yeah. So one out of 10 to the 150th power, those are the odds of that happening. And Eric Metaxas says that's like flipping a coin and getting heads, I think it was 20 million times in a row. That just will not happen. It's impossible. So that was all last week. We were uh, refuting chemical evolution. And as I said last week, if there is no chemical evolution, there is no biological evolution. Why? Uh, three people. Beth Ann? Okay, maybe. Yeah, like there was nothing to work with. There was no life. And again, evolution has to do with living things. So if chemical evolution is false, that's what you were saying, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right, let's, um, let's move on to uh, <laughs> all that was one critique. We're now on to the second critique, Okay. So problem number two, problem number one was um, chemical evolution is not supported by the evidence. Problem number two is um, the fossil record does not support evolution. Now this one I, I think is incredibly devastating to evolution. What is science based on? Observation. If evolution was true, you would expect to observe in the fossil record, literally millions of transitional species. Millions. In fact, more species than there are alive today. Because if you're going back billions of years into the fossil history, there should be literally billions of, of pieces of fossil evidence uh, for evolution. The problem is, there's none. They don't exist. Now, I'm gonna prove this by looking at two things. We'll look at the missing links, and we'll look at the Cambrian explosion. And both these things, I, I think, are a devastating critique of Darwinism. Okay, uh, so the missing links are supposedly the transitional or intermediate species Darwin expected to find uh, in abundance in the fossil record. And again, here's the problem. Uh, the missing links are still missing. Uh, Darwin was aware of the absence of the missing links in his own day. Uh, and he wrote this quote. By the way, this, this quote um, was the basis for Stephen Meyer's book two books ago called Darwin's Dilemma. 
Uh, and the whole book, I've read not all of it, but I've read a lot of it. Uh, it, it gets pretty technical into paleontology, but the whole book is essentially arguing uh, that Darwin's massive dilemma was fossils, the lack of fossil evidence for his theory. And by the way, if you read uh, Stephen Meyer's new book, um, not Signature in the Cell, it was his first book, The Return of the God Hypothesis, that book is basically summarizing his previous three books. So if you want um, a, a shorter, more succinct version of his previous three books, um, it's a fantastic book, and he's got a couple chapters where he deals in detail with the, these, the fossil issues. Okay, so back to Darwin. Darwin wrote this. But just in proportion as this process of extermination has acted on an enormous scale, so must the number of intermediate varieties which have formerly existed on the earth be truly enormous. He's saying there should be a massive amount of fossil evidence for transitional species. Then he says, why then is there not every geological formation, uh, in every geological formation, and every stratum full of such intermediate links. So he's asking, so why isn't that the case? Geology, geology assuredly does not reveal any such finely graduated organic chain, and this perhaps is the most obvious and gravest objection which can be urged against my theory. The explanation lies, as I believe, in the extreme imperfection of the geological record. So he's saying, <laughs> he's, he's basically saying that, there, again, there should be huge amounts of evidence in the fossil record for my theory, but the record is imperfect, but as time marches on, hopefully, he's saying, we'll see more and more evidence in the fossils for my theory. But has that happened? The opposite has happened. 150 years later, the missing links are still missing. And it's not because of uh, incomplete fossil evidence. Professor um, N. Herbert Nilsson of Sweden writes this, uh, the fossil material is now so complete that the lack of transitional species cannot be explained by the scarcity of the material. The deficiencies are real, they will never be filled. Now I'm gonna read a lot of quotes today because I want you guys to hear the experts saying there is no evidence from fossils. And again, that should be the one place where we see all the evidence. Okay, Darwinists have never given up on the missing links. Let me give several examples here. Uh, the first is Arcteryx. I think we have a picture of Arcteryx. And I'm pretty sure the clothing brand Arcteryx is named after this creature, although there's a, there's a P in this. Um, the clothing brand, there's no P, and I digress. Okay, um, Arcteryx, Arcteryx was, was found uh, maybe 10 years after Darwin, uh, a long time ago, and this was hailed as the missing link for years and years and years. But now everyone, everyone, even the staunchest Darwinist agrees that this was not the missing link, this was an extinct bird. Um, and again, that's not really disputed by Darwinists. They would agree with that assessment. Um, next was Java Man. There is Java Man. He was thought to be the missing link. But what's the problem with Java Man? Anyone know? He looks kind of like a friend of mine, actually. <laughs> I won't say who that friend is. Um, 
Java man was nothing more than a human skull cap, a thigh bone, three teeth, and a lot of imagination. A few years ago, a 342-page report by 19 evolutionists proved that Java man um, is bunk. Again, that's not creationist. That's evolutionist saying Java man is nonsense. Um, <laughs> ironically, uh, ignoring this report by 19 paleontologists who are pro-evolution, ignoring this information, Time Magazine in 1994 had Java Man on the cover as uh, definitive evidence for evolution. Again, even though this has been debunked by evolutionary scholars, all right? Then over the years, uh, next there was Neanderthal Man. Got a picture of him up there. There he is. Okay, what, anyone know what that's a play on right there? Thinking man, okay. Who did Thinking Man, anyone know? Famous sculpture. I have no clue, I just thought I'd ask you. It was Renaissance, I think. Um, Neanderthal Man was actually a member of the human family, it was discovered, and he kinda looks like a friend of mine, actually, so I'm not too surprised. Um, and then Piltdown Man, next. This was a giant hoax, everyone knows that today. Um, next was Nebraska Man. <laughs> Nebraska Man, the evidence for Nebraska Man was one single tooth. That's it. That's all there was for Nebraska Man. I think it was. Yeah, it was a pig's tooth. Um, uh, and then Nutcracker Man, I think we got a picture of him. There he is. Um, and then Lucy have all been debunked. Now, Jay, you had a rock. That, now, how does this disprove Lucy? I mean, it kind of looks like Lucy. Hold it up. It is Lucy. And Lucy is the proof of evolution because this is volcanic rock and it's been Lucy just spontaneously spit out of a rock. Okay. There's the evidence right there. It, it kind of looks like a skull. Can, can you guys see it over there? Make sure they can see it. Okay. There it is. There's Lucy. All right, speaking of Lucy, uh, in 1974, the American anthropologist Donald Johansson found a tiny skeleton east of the Great Rift Valley in Ethiopia, nicknamed Lucy. It was dated at three million years and became a sensation when announced at the Nobel Symposium on, on Early Man in 1978. Lucy was hailed as the first ape to walk upright and an undoubted link between apes and humans. But in a question and answer session at the University of Missouri in 1996, Johansson admitted that the knee joint cited as proof that Lucy walked upright had been found more than two miles away and 200 feet lower in the strata. In 1985, um, Richard Leakey, the famous evolutionary paleontologist, was a guest on the Dick Cavett Show, which is a pretty famous show. Uh, Dick is a wonderful uh, believer, actually, and he interviews people, uh, intellectuals. So uh, Leakey had with him some impressive-looking human fossils. And as they were talking about the fossils, Cavett continued to press Leakey gently about how many of the bones were actually found in the ground. Well, Leakey finally admitted 
Actually, just a small piece of bone was found, and then he and his team of experts reconstructed the rest with plaster. Cavett was dumbfounded. And sadly, uh, this is considered scientific proof. Now, even staunch Darwinian paleontologists admit that the missing links are still missing. And again, here I'm going to quote for you quite a few experts that are mostly pro-Darwin admitting that there is no fossil evidence. And, and again, I, I want to keep harping on this. If evolution is true, you and I should expect to see millions of pieces of evidence because science is based on observation. Stephen Jay Gould, probably considered uh, one of the greatest Darwinists of the 20th century. He taught at Harvard University for several decades. Um, and he, he says this um, about the fossil evidence. Uh, the absence of fossil evidence for intermediary stages between major transitions in organic design, indeed our inability, even in our imagination, to construct functional intermediates in many cases, has been a persistent and nagging problem for gradualistic accounts of evolution. And then he says this, the extreme rarity, and I would say the total absence, of transitional forms in the fossil record persists as the trade secret of paleontology. The evolutionary trees that adorn our textbooks have data only at the tips and nodes of their branches. The rest is inference, however reasonable, not the evidence of fossils. Darwin's argument that the geological record is extremely imperfect still persists as the favorite escape of most paleontologists from the embarrassment of a record that seems to show little evidence of evolution. Now, um, Stephen Jay Gould, he's dead now, um, he was still an evolutionist. He put forward a theory to get around this called punctuated equilibrium or punk EQ. Anyone know what that is? What is punk EQ? This is worth a, this is worth a Bruce Bros card. I, I know that Coy knows what this is. Sort of. Kendall? Yeah. Yes, yes. So, so, so in the evolutionary process, he argues that hardly anything happened for billions of years, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there were these massively important uh, developments or uh, advancements in evolution. So punctuated equi equilibrium. So things were normal, equilibrium for a long time, and then there was this massive explosion of advancement. The problem is, is that no one else but Gould believes this. It's not supported by the fossil evidence. And furthermore, it's not even really evolution. Because evolution takes place as you have really, really small um, adaptations over time, those small adaptations over billions of years create new species according to evolution. And Punk EQ really flies in the face of that. Kendall, you get a, you get a gift card for that. Can you, can you give that to Kendall for me? Thank you. Uh, Stephen Meyer goes into great detail of this in uh, a couple of his books. Uh, the late David B. Kitts School of Geology and Geophysics, Department of the History of Science, University of Oklahoma, a very credentialed person. Um, he offers the following cautionary advice. He says this, 
Despite the bright promise that paleontology provides a means of seeing evolution, it has presented some nasty difficulties for evolutionists, the most notorious of which is the presence of gaps in the fossil record. Evolution requires intermediate forms between species, and paleontology does not provide them, period. And again, if this is all we had, it would be enough to deny evolution. The late Dr. Colin Patterson, former senior paleontologist at the British Museum of Natural History, stated this, I will lay it on the line, there is not one such fossil for which one could make a watertight argument. And again, this guy's not a Christian. He's just saying the facts are there is no evidence in the fossils for evolution. Finally, uh, David Rapp, curator of geology at the Food Museum of Natural History, says this, the evidence we find in the geologic record is not nearly as compatible with Darwinian natural selection as we would like it to be. There were several problems, but the principal one was that the geologic record did not then and still does not yield a finely graduated chain of slow and progressive evolution. And then he says this, we are now about 150 years after Darwin, and the knowledge of the fossil record has been greatly expanded. We now have a quarter of a million fossil species, but the situation hasn't changed much. We have even fewer examples of evolutionary transition than we had in Darwin's time. One more quote here. Um, a guy named Niels uh, Eldridge, he went out and he interviewed uh, the top five paleontologists in the world. Uh, all these guys are Darwinists. Uh, and uh, he summarized his findings by saying this. Is this the right one? Hold on. Yeah, uh, this, this is the next quote. Jerry, I skipped one. Uh, he says this. Um, None of the five museum officials could offer a single example of a transitional series of fossilized organisms that would document the transformation of one basically different type to another. So, all that to say, and I can quote more experts, but I won't because there's too many quotes. But all that to say is that there is not a single shred of evidence in the geologic record, in paleontology, in the fossils, for evolution. And again, if this is all the information we had, it would be enough to be incredibly skeptical of Darwinism. Okay, I'll pause there. Any questions so far, before I get to the Cambrian explosion, um, about fossils and evolution? Questions or comments? Why is this <laughs> It's a great question. It's a great question. Why do you think it's still taught in schools? Romans 1, we hate God. There, there, there's an underlining, I think I mentioned this last week, presupposition that we cannot allow God to be a part of science. But good science should go wherever the evidence leads, period. And if the evidence leads towards a designer, we should go there. But somehow in our, in our nation, in our school systems, there is a belief that we need to, uh, there needs to be a bifurcation between science and, and faith. And, and, and there's, there's so much at stake here. Um, there's, there is so much pressure in the academy 
to embrace this. And if you don't, you lose out on grants, you don't get tenure, uh, it's hard to get PhDs. So there's a tremendous amount of pressure in the academies to embrace this worldview and this idea. Um, so it's hard to get jobs if you don't embrace this in some of those disciplines. And, and I'm gonna, when, I, when, when we have our esteemed panel in a couple of weeks, I'm gonna ask those guys, what was it like for you to go through graduate school uh, and not believe this stuff? Um, yeah, Joe. Right. And all that. Right. It just, it's created somehow. Yeah. Any, com any comments on that, Troy? Someone needs to dig that up and sell it. Yeah. And then tithe to GCF. <laughs> I don't care if they frack, as long as they're tithing. <laughs> right, Troy? I'm kidding, by the way, kind of. We're getting political now, aren't we? Yeah, Pat. Yeah. The Russians actually believe that it's a bacteriological oh. reaction, and that's why you see okay. killing, and after they empty stuff out and say, oh, it should be done, and they come back later, and they didn't kill it. Huh, interesting. Interesting. Huh. I don't think it's evolved, is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's good. Okay. Um, let's talk about the Cambrian Explosion. Um, this, again, this is more evidence that, that there is no evidence in the fossil record for evolution. Now, <laughs> um, please, please don't get hung up on young earth, old earth, okay? Um, there are really good Christians who disagree on this. Um, there are, there are Bible-believing Christians who deny evolution, who affirm inerrancy, who believe in an old earth, others who believe in a young earth, okay? So depending on where you're at, uh, the Cambrian explosion either happened uh, 530 million years ago or seven or 8,000 years ago. But it happened. We all know the Cambrian explosion happened at some point in the past. Was it a long, long, long time ago? Millions and millions of years? Maybe. Was it several thousand years ago? Maybe. I'm not going to comment on that right now. But there, there is a Cambrian period in geologic history. We all know that. And the only fossils found below the Cambrian stratum are single-celled organisms. Uh, in the Cambrian strata, complex species appear suddenly, geologically speaking, without any evidence of transitional species. And this turns Darwin's tree of life upside down. Most science textbooks teach that all life can be traced back to one single-cell organism. I've got a an image here of the Tree of Life, a couple of them actually. Um, let's go to the next one, Jeremy. Can you guys see that, kind of? Okay, so at the very, very bottom, that's, that's uh, chemical evolution happened according to this theory, and you have 
uh, a very, very basic single-celled organism. And then from that, supposedly, comes every single version of life on planet Earth. Whether you're talking about trees or snails or zebras or giraffes or turtles or humans or birds, Darwin teaches, amazingly, that everything evolved from one single-celled organism. Now, that requires a massive amount of faith, doesn't it? And again, if that's true, there should be literally billions and billions of pieces of evidence uh, in the geologic stratum. Uh, the bottom of the tree represents single-celled organisms. The top of the tree represents the most complex species, um, et cetera. Now, the Cambrian explosion paints a very, very different picture of what actually happened. Fossils found in the Cambrian period represent nearly every major group of living organisms. And interestingly, they all show up at once in the geologic record with no transitional history, which sounds kind of like day five and day six of Genesis. They all show up together, geologically speaking. <laughs> which is why evolutionist Richard Dawkins said, it was though they, species, were just planted there in the Cambrian period without any evolutionary history. Amen. Because that's what happened, Mr. Dawkins, Dr. Dawkins. Darwin's tree would be much more accurate if it was turned upside down since there were more species in the Cambrian period than there are today, which means species have died off, which is very interesting. Uh, many have gone extinct since then. So the Cambrian explosion um, is a massive problem for Darwin's theory of descent with modification. If descent with modification were true, again, we would find millions of transitional species before the Cambrian period, and there's zero evidence for that in the fossil record. Instead, most of the species we see in the Cambrian period have zero transitional history. And I've already mentioned um, Stephen Jay Gould, who talks about Punk EQ. Uh, but again, no one really follows him in this. He's, he, he was kind of on his own, uh, trying to get away from the implications of the, the real fossil record. Um, and what he's putting forward really isn't evolution. It's a, it's a weird version of kind of evolution and creation. Okay, so before I move on to problem three, again, any more comments or questions about fossils? And what I'm basically arguing is the missing links are still missing, and the Cambrian explosion wreaks havoc on Darwin's theory of descent with modification. So any questions or comments about fossils? And I'll say it again. This is the only argument we need. Yes, Isaac. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so Isaac's question is, where did the pterodactyls go? And some of the dinosaurs and other things. And giant dragonflies. I'm glad those are gone, by the way. <laughs> 
there, there's lots of speculation. I mean, it could be that the, that the global flood in Genesis 9 caused lots of those things to go extinct. Other people argue um, that the, the conditions, um, the, the geologic conditions, the atmospheric conditions right after the fall were still really, really conducive to life, different than they are now. And as the fall slowly took effect over time, those atmospheric conditions may have changed over time as the effects of sin took more and more hold on creation. So it could be that some of those animals required different atmospheric conditions, different plants that are no longer around because the fall eventually, um, the effects of the fall eventually destroyed those things. That's one theory. Um, and again, a lot of this depends on whether you're an old earth person or a young earth person. Um, so... But I think, I think a, a global worldwide flood could answer a lot of that. Yes, Brett. Right. Right. Yeah. Like the spotted owl. That's very early 2000s. Yeah. <laughs> yes, Joe. Yeah. But whether you agree in the you know new young earth, old earth, or whatever, uh, I think Ken Ham's group said um, every kind is in there. And right. If you walk through there, every kind is in there. Yeah. You know, one reptile, one horse type critter. Yeah. You know, and then there's microevolution that from breeding. Right. There are a lot of species on the ark. Yeah. yeah. Right. Okay. Um, I should probably dive into the next subject. Um, yeah. Go ahead, Coy. I did. Yeah. What, what should I say about him, though? Should I mention him again? Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah, Coy's talking about Dr. Gunter Beckley, German paleontologist. He was in charge of, of Germany's most prestigious natural history museum. And uh, I think I mentioned this, I'll mention it again. It's, it's, a, it's a fun story. So uh, for, for the 105th anniversary of Darwin's birth, I think it was his birth, um, Dr. Beckley put together um, a huge display celebrating Darwin. Because at that point, he was a convinced Darwinist. And, and he had the scales of truth. So he had this massive scale. Uh, and on one scale was Darwin's Origin of Species, the book. And then the other scale, there were several books by intelligent design guys, mostly Stephen Meyer and Michael Behe, um, um, Jonathan Wells. And, and the, the, uh, the display said, the one book that outweighs them all. And so Darwin's book was down here. It was very weighty and academic. And then the other books were up here. Um, so one of his colleagues said, great display, but have you read those books by Stephen Meyer and Jonathan Wells and Michael Behe? Well, no, I actually haven't. Well, you probably should in case you get asked about them. Okay, fine, I'll read them just to disprove them. So <laughs> Dr. Beckley ended up reading all those books, and slowly over time he became more and more persuaded uh, by the arguments for intelligent design. And he came out of the closet as an ID proponent 
But uh, Germany is a very, very socialistic country, so you can't fire anybody. The museum wanted to fire him because he changed his perspective on evolution. They, they eventually reached a settled agreement. I don't know how much he got paid, but he, I think he was basically paid to leave the museum. Um, and he, he's become a Christian since then, and he's doing really good work for the Discovery Institute uh, out of Seattle. But yeah, he, he's devoted his whole life to uh, studying dragonflies in the fossils. If you're gonna focus on one thing, why not be dragonflies and fossils, you know? So anyways, that's the story of Gunter Beckley. Um, okay, can I get through this next section in 15 minutes? Let me see here. <laughs> oh, can I do it? Um, do I wanna rush through this? I'll start it, I'll start it. We'll see, we'll see where this takes us. Okay, so third problem. So problem one, chemical evolution um, is not proved by the data. Problem two, the fossil record poses massive problems to biological evolution. And then problem three, microevolution does not prove macroevolution. Many scientists assume that microevolution, small changes over time within a species, eventually leads to a functional advantage, which leads to a new species. But this has never, ever been observed. This is um, an unobserved extrapolation. Let me list a few problems with this idea. First, there are no examples anywhere of microevolution proving macroevolution. Jonathan Wells wrote a famous book called The Icons of Evolution, and in that book he goes through and he looks at all the icons or the illustrations that are often used to prove that evolution is true, and he debunks each one, starting with uh, Darwin's famous finches. So as many of you know, on the Galapagos Islands, Darwin observed that the finches with the larger beaks seemed to survive a period of drought because they could actually get at the food better in the rocks. I think it was the rocks, maybe it was the dirt. They, they were able to survive that season of drought, and so they were able to pass on. So the, the, the finches with the shorter beaks died, and the longer beaks, finches kept reproducing, so eventually over time, all the birds would have longer beaks. And that happening, over billions of years, according to Darwin, would create a new species. But many people don't realize this. About a year and a half after Darwin left the Galapagos Islands and the conditions returned to normal on the islands, the drought was gone, all the beaks turned back to normal size. Uh, Philip Johnson argues in his superb book, uh, Darwin on Trial, how many of you read that book, by the way? Philip Johnson, Darwin on Trial. That's probably the best place to start. If you want a really good critique of evolution, um, I would start with that. Philip Johnson uh, was a professor of law at Berkeley. Um, he taught students how to build legal cases with evidence. So he used those skills uh, to look at the theory of Darwinism, and he dismantles uh, Darwin's theory by using his legal mind. Anyways, um, yeah, Dar Darwin saw the finches as proof uh, that um, the, the, the birds with the longer beaks would survive, therefore survival of the fittest uh, was a fact. Now, again, Philip Johnson argues in his book that survival of the fittest, in particular, uh, Darwin's theory here, so Darwin was basically saying um, the finches with the longer beaks survived, which proves evolution. 
But Philip Johnson argued that's a tautology. What's a tautology? Anyone know what a tautology is? Someone? Nope. It's a philosophical concept. What's a tautology? Anyone know? No one knows? Mark? You're close. A tautology is merely saying the same thing twice using different words or terminology. Okay, so for instance, here's a tautology. Um, our nation must come together to unite. Where's the tautology there? Coming together and uniting. You're saying the same thing twice. Or this is my favorite one that every coach says at the halftime speech. They need to score more points than the other team to win. Duh. <laughs> or it's deja vu all over again. You're saying the same thing twice. You're, you're saying nothing, really. Or this one, remember when 4G cell phones were a new innovation. If they're new, then they're innovations. You guys get that one? Okay. Or he was wearing chain mail. What is mail? Chain. He was wearing chain, chain. You're saying the same thing twice, okay? So by saying the birds with the longer beaks survived, all you're saying is the birds with the longer beaks survived. You're not proving anything. You're not, you're not proving anything at all scientifically. You're just saying the same thing twice. So Philip Johnson argues very persuasively in his book that Darwin really proved nothing with this experiment. And again, Darwinists often ignore the fact that when the environmental conditions changed on the island, the beaks went back to normal size. To argue that a temporary change in beak size leads to the creation of a whole new species seems more like a fairy tale than science. Okay, what about the other icons of evolution? There's the famous mutated fruit flies. Look at the pictures, pictures of those, there they are. Um, which simply proved that flies with two sets of wings could not survive. That's all that it proved. I'm sorry. Yes. I want to make sure you were listening, Beth Ann. <laughs> Clearly you are. Yeah. Yeah, that was, yeah, that was the peppered moth experiment. Yeah. And what did I just say? Yeah. Yeah. Wait, I'm so confused right now. Beth Ann, what are you saying? Yeah. Oh, it was the picture that was confusing people. I was like, what did I say that was wrong? It was Jeremy. <laughs> that was my fault, Jeremy. I had the wrong picture. <laughs> We should just quit right now. I'm so confused. Okay, so what I said was right, I think. Uh, the famous mutated fruit flies experiment simply proves that flies with two sets of wings could not survive. In addition, the peppered moth experiment and the Hackle's embryo drawings, let's show that one next, they were both hoaxes. The embryo, yeah, there it is. So both um, the peppered moth experiment was, was faked, it was rigged, 
And how many of you have seen these drawings before? Hackles and Beale drawings? Okay. What's wrong with these drawings? Besides the fact that they were faked, they were forged. What, what, what's actually being described there? Anyone know? They're skipping several stages, and I think it was a pig and not a human at the end of the, of the drawing. But the bottom line is, is that Hackle faked these drawings. They were not scientifically put together. Now, sadly, these icons of evolution are still used in textbooks today to prove that evolution is true, even though they've all been debunked, even by many evolutionists. Now, since the icons of evolution don't prove that microevolution leads to macroevolution, Darwinism has moved on to genetics. And I've mentioned this already. Um, but the idea is that if there's no evidence in the fossil record for these small changes over time leading to a functional advantage, which leads to a new species, then we have to go to genetics and the work of Gregor Mendel uh, from, the, from the early part of the 20th century. So neo-Darwinists argue that tiny mutations at the genetic level over billions of years macro, uh, create new species. So microevolution leads to macroevolution. But this is highly improbable for several reasons. But what's the most important reason? And don't put that quote up yet. Sorry. Hide that quote. Don't read it. Okay. Why, why is this most likely not true? Brett. Okay. Okay. Okay, good. Very good. That's the place to start. Troy? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, most, most, the vast, vast majority of mutations do not lead to flourishing, but they lead to death, destruction, and all kinds of other problems. Okay? Um, let me read this quote. Now you can put it up there, Jeremy. Uh, from the Discovery Institute, it summarizes this really well. They make the point that mutations cause harm and do not build complexity. Darwinian evolution relies on random mutations that are selected by a blind, unguided process of natural selection that has no goals. Such a random and un undirected process tends to harm organisms and does not improve them or build complexity. As National Academy of Sciences biologist Lynn Margulis has said, new mutations don't create new species. They create offsprings that are impaired. Similarly, past president of the French Academy of Sciences, Pierre-Paul Grasset, contended that mutations have a very limited constructive capacity because no matter how numerous they may be, mutations do not produce any kind of evolution. And then this, this next quote, uh, Matt Leosa is a professor emeritus of bioprocess engineering at Aalto University in Finland. He writes that actual mutations are very rare and seldom beneficial. And this, this next stat's amazing. Negative mutations exceed positive ones by a thousand to a million fold according to various estimations. So again, they're all making the same point. The vast majority of genetic mutations do not lead to benefit or a functional advantage, but they lead to problems, to death. So microevolution at the genetic level and non-genetic level cannot create 
new species. And this has never been observed to do so in a lab. Evolutionist James Shapiro writes this, it's important to note that selection has never led to the formation of a new species as Darwin postulated. No matter how morphologically and behaviorally different they become, all dogs remain members of the same species, are capable of interbreeding with other dogs, and will revert in a few generations to a common feral dog phenotype if allowed to go wild. And I'll finish with this. Finally, uh, no one has successfully described how microevolution leads to macroevolution. Uh, Michael Behe, uh, who wrote the famous bestseller, Darwin's Black Box, many years ago. I think he's a microbiologist. Is that right, Coy? Is he a microbiologist? He's a biochemist. Biochemist. Um, after scouring thousands of articles in peer-reviewed journals, uh, Michael B., he claims that it's incredibly difficult to find anyone in all those articles, he says, not even one single article that describes how the gradual step-by-step process of evolution brings about new species. No one can explain how that actually happens. And he writes this, quote, if a theory claims to be able to explain some phenomenon but does not generate even an attempt at an explanation, then it should be banished. Despite comparing sequences and mathematical modeling, molecular evolution has never addressed the question of how complex structures come to be. Okay, so summary. Uh, the icons of evolution and the neo-Darwinian synthesis referring, uh, relying on genetics does not prove that over thousands, if not billions of years, microevolution eventually leads to the creation of new species. Now, I gotta stop there, because I've got three minutes left. Yes? Say that again. Yeah? Ray, do you want to speak to that? I couldn't hear him either. That's why I'm asking you. Yeah. <laughs> so he, he was saying, um, is it better to, to use the, the term recessive gene instead of mutation to describe what's happening? Is that? So, so. Yeah. Ray, do you want to respond to that? Ray's my genetics. Give it to Ray over here. Does that work? If not, just nice and loud, Ray.
certain allele. And so it takes two alleles to have some demonstration of certain things like eye color, for example, or what you're saying about the bears. The, the, the bottom line, though, is that has nothing really to do with mutations. It's part of just the general genetics that we have. So, but, but it's very difficult to have recessive you know, genetic um, presentations. It's more complex. It's, it's rare to have that happen. Yes. Yeah, but again, it gets back to even more basic that, you know, their genetic makeup is actually different. They're, they're, they're significantly different than, say, a brown bear. Their genetic information is dramatically different. And that's, that gets to the problem of all of this stuff is that the most simple organism that we know that possibly exists is incredibly complicated. Right. It, you know, could never have just sprung out of you know, and, that, and that's what, as more, the more that we get into this, the more we understand that the complexity is mind-boggling. And so it just doesn't ever support this idea that nothing came from something. Right. So. All right, we, we, what's that? Um, that's very possible. I, I, again, that goes back to, I think you mentioned this, if you're young Earth or old Earth, it probably depends on your perspective there. But I think that's, that's one possible interpretation. Um, and I think young Earth people would say that, that the, the flood was what wiped out all the dinosaurs. So before the flood, there was potentially uh, humans and dinosaurs existing side by side. I gotta wrap it up. It's 946. I'm sure it was a great question, Brett. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like the Loch Ness Monster. Okay, okay, on that note, 946. Okay, thanks for being patient. Let me pray. Father, thank you uh, that we have science on our side as Christians. Thank you for how you reveal your glory to us in creation. And Lord, we pray that you would help us now uh, to worship you in spirit and in truth as we sing and hear preaching and pray together and fellowship together and celebrate the Lord's Supper together. In Jesus' name, amen.